If you have Bibles, if you would open up with me to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. That can be found on page 987 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. have to forgive me, I lost my voice earlier this week just getting it back. So, um, and when, you're, uh, when you have that passage opened, <clears throat> you can follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Hear another word of the Lord. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. In the um, spring of 1940, right as uh, World War II was underway, <clears throat> there were some serious concerns at the outset among Allied leaders, both uh, British leaders and French leaders, uh, that, their, that their respective troops were not going to be able to halt the advancing German army as it pushed into France. Uh, and it didn't take long until those concerns became a palpable reality. And in late, late May of 1940, uh, the British and French troops found themselves surrounded on the northern French coastal town of Dunkirk. I'm sure many of you are aware of what happened at Dunkirk. There have been uh, various films, to my knowledge, in recent years about the events that unfolded at Dunkirk. Uh, but in summary, when the Germans had British and French troops surrounded on the beaches and Allied leaders feared that they were only going to be able to evacuate 20 or 30,000 men off the beaches by sea, to the United Kingdom, they ended up being able to evacuate to over 300,000, effectively saving the British expeditionary forces from annihilation. Well, in retrospect, there were several factors that allowed for that remarkable rescue to unfold the way that it did. And one of the critical contributions in the days of Dunkirk uh, came from a British commander who was located about 20 miles to the west of Dunkirk at a city called Calais, and his name was Claude Nicholson. You see, while well, the vast majority of British troops were surrounded at Dunkirk, hundreds of thousands of them, Nicholson commanded a garrison 20 miles away of only a few thousand troops at Calais. And as the German forces advanced to attack Dunkirk, he and his men, some 20 miles away, were able to stall the German advance just long enough so that the evacuation at Dunkirk could succeed in the way that it did. And yet, in drawing attention away from Dunkirk, Nicholson essentially undertook a suicide mission. Now, at first, he thought that he and his troops would eventually be able to get out too, that they'd eventually be able to evacuate by sea as well. And then one night, though, the Prime Minister Winston Churchill sent Nicholson a telegram which read, quote, every hour you continue to exist is of the greatest help to the British expeditionary forces. Government has therefore decided 
that you must continue to fight, evacuation will not, repeat, not take place. Now, though his contribution allowed for the heroics at Dunkirk to unfold the way they did, sadly, Nicholson would eventually be taken prisoner and he would eventually die a few years later in German captivity. Now, while few, if any of us, know what it's like to assume a sacrifice like Nicholson did, maybe you do, but I doubt few of us do, it's only a matter of time until all of us, if you haven't already, will be called to bear in our own lives seemingly unbearable news, like Nicholson did on the night he received Churchill's telegram. If you haven't already, it's, it's only inevitable, it's only a matter of time that each of us, perhaps even several times in our lives, will be called to receive news that deflates us of hope, news that's empty of even the faint silver lining of battlefield glory in Nicholson's case, and news that may ultimately lead us to question with sorrow and with tears, whether or not God is faithful or if we have, in effect, been abandoned ourselves by God. Well, when we open up to 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we learn that the church in Thessalonica, they've been somewhat deflated of hope themselves, and they too are processing the terrifying prospect that perhaps God abandons some of his people. Notice that when we open to verse 13, Paul begins by stating that he doesn't want his readers to grieve as if they have no hope. And so why might that be the case? Why might his readers be walking down a road of hopeless grief? Well, in their case, the issue had to do with the fate of fellow Christians who had recently died and whether or not their deceased loved ones would miss out or at best, be at some sort of disadvantage when Christ comes again. You see, believers in Thessalonica had apparently believed that Christ was going to return within their lifetime, maybe even in only a matter of days. And yet if their fellow believers died before Christ returns, which some had, then it was feared that those beloved ones might miss out entirely on the hope of resurrection life that comes at Christ's return. In summary, they were reeling in hopeless sorrow that for some genuine believers who they knew, death would speak the final word, and that some would be left behind for good when Christ returns. Now, however they arrived at that misunderstanding, it's not entirely clear, but what grief like that can do to a person is call into question the character of God and His faithfulness. Is God faithful to his people? Or are there genuine believers who Christ, in the end, abandons? Well, the good news of our passage is that whatever the fear that fueled their hopeless grief and whatever the source of our misplaced fears that we have, fearing that could we perhaps have been abandoned by God in our sorrow, Paul reminds us that Christ does not abandon his own. And even death cannot sever us from the love of God in Christ, nor from the hope of glory. So our big idea as we explore the text before us is this. In life or in death, Christ does not abandon his own. In life or in death, Christ does not abandon his own. 
We're going to look at the passage before us in two parts. First, we're going to see hope in what Christ has done, and then second, hope in what Christ will do. Hope in what Christ has done and hope in what Christ will do. So let's begin by looking at that first part, hope in what Christ has done. Now, as Paul enters into this situation of hopeless grief that apparently pervaded many of his readers, there's a lot, I think, that we could learn from Paul's approach to comforting those in grief, because even though he recognizes their over-the-top grief is fueled by theological inaccuracies, and he's going to go on to correct some of those inaccuracies, he also recognizes that death still isn't good. It's not something to dress up or sugarcoat. Death is awful. Death is worth grieving. And yet, as important as that, it's important that their grief and our grief, even though death is worth grieving, look radically different from the world. You see, in the world in which Paul and the church in Thessalonica lived, hopeless grief, we might say, was something of the norm. Uh, For example, the Roman statesman Seneca, who's also a philosopher, considered the idea of immortality, life after death, to be, quote, human pipe dreams. And a few centuries later, a Greek poet by the name of Theocritus would write, hopes are for the living, without hope are the dead. Now, if that's your view of death and this is your best life now, then it's understandable why death would plunge someone into the depths of despair. And yet, that's not the approach that Paul maps out for the church. Far from it. Now, on the one hand, we're invited, they're invited, to grieve and to weep the realities of death because death isn't good. Um, I think it was in Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's In a Grief Observed, he says that the death of a beloved is an amputation. And the Apostle Paul elsewhere calls death our last enemy. Even Jesus models what it looks like to grieve over death when he wept over the tomb of his friend Lazarus in John 11, fully aware that in just a moment he would raise his friend, revive him back to life. Death is still very much evil. And in Romans 12, 15, Paul calls upon us as Christians, as the church, to join in the highs and lows of our brothers and sisters in Christ by rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. So on the one hand, grief is healthy for Christians suffering loss, but at the same time, grief is not a bottomless crevasse that we fall into. So how then do we grieve well in a way that Paul would call healthy? Well, like what Calvin puts it, how Calvin puts it. Calvin puts it like this. He writes, let therefore the grief of the pious, the grief of the Christian, be mixed with consolation, which may train them in patience. And then he writes, the hope of a blessed resurrection, which is the mother of all patience, will affect this. This is what Calvin says there. He says, the way to grieve well, while we're grieving on the one hand, but at the same time, we're not bottoming out in despair is by giving serious weight to quote the hope of the blessed resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly where Paul turns next in our passage. Again, in verse 14, the first place Paul turns after encouraging his discouraged readers to grieve but to grieve well is the death and resurrection of Christ. He writes very plainly, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Friends, understand that our grief in this life and our hope in the next 
is ultimately bound up in what Jesus Christ has done outside of ourselves in human history. In just a few words, Paul captures for us here the essence of the hope of the world by summarizing the gospel of our salvation. Our hope, according to Paul, lies first and foremost in the fact that Jesus in human history, in the fullness of time, took the sentence of God's judgment that was due for us for our sin upon himself. He drunk the wrath of God down to its dredges, suffered and died. Then three days later, as the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Romans, Christ was raised for our justification, raised to make us right before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice in our passage that Paul doesn't scold his readers for their misplaced grief, far from it. Instead, he gently corrects them as a good shepherd with only a few words. And yet these are words with power. These are words that capture the essence of the gospel of our salvation. In fact, if we were looking for ourselves to distill the gospel down to only a few words, I don't think we could do better than what Paul offers here. And yet this is far from the only place in Scripture where our hope in this life and the next is tied intimately to the death and specifically the resurrection of Christ. In fact, in the lengthiest theological exposition of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul so ties our hope in this life and death to the resurrection of Christ that he claims that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, if the resurrection never happened, then Paul writes, quote, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And yet, thankfully, the reality is that Christ has been raised from the dead. And there were more than 500 witnesses to the resurrection. And it's the reality of Christ's resurrection that lifts us out of the despair in the present and testifies to the fact that, the, that our God does not abandon His own. Now, as an aside, if you have questions this morning, perhaps about the historical veracity of the resurrection. There are a number of good books and articles we could point you to. I'd encourage you to peruse um, some of the resources in the parlor about the resurrection specifically and grief in general and take whatever you might find helpful. But as it relates to what Paul says about the resurrection in our text, notice that after this brief reminder of Christ's resurrection, he then reflects a little bit more upon what that resurrection in human history means for you and me today. Notice that in the second part of verse 14, he reminds the church that because Jesus Christ in human history most definitely died for our sins and then rose again for our justification, quote, even so through Jesus Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see, at present, when someone dies, they aren't ultimately annihilated. They don't cease to exist. Instead, Paul tells us here that our loved ones who die in Christ have simply fallen asleep. Now, sleep is a common metaphor used in the Bible to refer to death, um, just to give one other place where it's used. When Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7, Luke tells us that when Stephen died, he, quote, fell asleep. But at the same time, it's not as if this metaphor of sleep is designed to glaze over the tragedy of death so that we don't grieve, and neither does that metaphor give standing to a view that's been out there in the history of the church known as soul sleep, 
where it's believed by some that death brings a person into an unconscious state after death. Not at all. Contrary to that view, the Bible has a robust view of what we call the intermediate state, where when we die as believers, though the body rests in the grave, the souls of God's people go immediately into heavenly glory to enjoy fellowship with God in Christ immediately after death. This metaphor of sleep as death doesn't in any way undercut the Bible's testimony to this intermediate state, but what it does do is reinforce the temporary and provisional nature of death. You see, sleep I think is an appropriate metaphor for death, because just as sleep is a temporary state, so too separation of the body and soul in death is temporary for the believer. Our ultimate hope, in other words, isn't reached in death. It's reached when Christ returns, and those who have died in Christ, died in the Lord, are reunited soul with body, specifically with resurrection bodies that have been made fit to bask in the light of God's presence for all eternity, to see by sight what we presently only see by faith. And as Paul sees it, Christ's resurrection in human history is the guarantee for you and me in Christ of a future resurrection that we one day look forward to, whether dead or alive. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians 15, that really important passage we alluded to a moment ago about the resurrection, Paul mentioned that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's glorious resurrection already happened in human history, and because it happened, those who have died in Christ will most certainly be raised with Christ when He comes again in glory. Friends, this is the hope that anchors us in our grief. That's true. We will never escape death, but when we look to what Christ has done and we recognize that if God did not abandon His Son, that He will also not abandon those who are united by faith to His Son either. Now, on the one hand, it's true that that simply knowing these things to be true will never completely soften the blow of death. And yet, on the other hand, Paul in verse 13 set up this entire exposition on the resurrection and second coming of Christ, matters of what we call eschatology, matters of last things, by stating up front that his goal has been to equip his readers with knowledge so that they wouldn't be uninformed, so that we wouldn't be uninformed as we navigate issues of grief. Knowledge, it's true, doesn't extinguish grief. We've already talked about even a moment ago that that even a deeper knowledge of death should actually lead us to grieve. But knowledge of these rich truths, according to Paul, really should help us walk the road of sorrow and grief as an anchored people, as a confident people, anchored in the truth that death is not final and confident in the fact that God in no way abandons His own. So, If you're walking down this road of grief right now, or even to help you walk down that road of grief in the future, which all of us will eventually be called to do if we haven't already, don't be uninformed about what the Bible teaches on these things. Let these truths transform the way that you think about death and the way that you grieve death and even the way that you enter into the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are likewise grieving with sorrow and tears, death as well. But as a brief aside, notice that one of the things that our passage doesn't address here, 
but maybe it's a question on your mind and heart right now, is what about those who die apart from Christ? What about them? And how in the world could we grieve a situation like that with hope? Well, first, so that we're not uninformed about that issue, the Bible is clear that those who die apart from Christ will also sadly live eternally apart from Christ in hell. And although unbelievers aren't Paul's focus in this passage, the Bible teaches us that at the end of the age, when Christ returns, everyone, believer and unbeliever, will receive resurrection bodies, but for the unbeliever, it's not a resurrection to everlasting life, it's a resurrection to everlasting death. Now, this is the second question, how are we called to grieve a situation like that? Well, though we don't have hope for a person who dies apart from the Lord, and as sad as that is, it's something the Bible insists upon, we can still hope in the fact that God is just and that God will do in everything what is right. And more than that, when we grieve the death of someone who died apart from the Lord, that should underscore for all of us the need to be united to Christ by faith now, to be, as Paul puts it in Galatians 2, crucified with Christ, because only if we die with Christ will we live with Christ. And so if your hope right now, as you hear this, isn't bound up in what Christ has done in human history and what, as our passage is going to articulate in just a moment, what Christ will do at the end of the age. Friends, turn to Him today as the only comfort in life and death through repentance and faith. So, to summarize this first part of our passage, what we hope for in this life is ultimately rooted in the past. It's rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord and what that guarantees for all believers, whether alive or deceased, is that we will one day be raised too. But in the next part of our passage, Paul looks from the past, what Christ accomplished in human history and the implications of that for you and me as we sit here today, and he turns to the future. He turns to what Christ will do at the end of the age, when he brings about this resurrection of believers on the last day. So this leads to our second point, where we are called to hope in what Christ will do. Now, by keying us into the death and resurrection of Christ only briefly, Paul's already at this point begun to lift his readers, and hopefully even you as well, out of a hopeless despair that we sometimes spiral into. Remember, his readers were concerned about whether those who had died already in Christ would miss out on the resurrection when Christ returns. And, and Paul assures us that because death didn't hold Christ, neither will it hold those who have died in the Lord, who have died in Christ either. But now, in order to reassure his concerned readers further, Paul takes us to the end of human history, and he provides an interesting, though brief, sketch of what's going to happen when Christ comes again. And the first area of focus is exactly that, namely that the one who death could not hold, who was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who now sits in glory, ruling and defending His church, friends, He will most assuredly one day come again as our triumphant King. Theologians often refer to this coming, Christ's second coming, as his um, parousia, or as his parousia, however you want to pronounce that. It's a Greek word that means presence or coming. And just look at how Christ's parousia is described in our passage. 
Paul tells us that one day in the future and in their future and in our future, the Lord Jesus will, he will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. According to Paul, when Christ comes again in glory at the end of the age, this is going to be something loud and dramatic that you won't be able to read or, or that you won't be able to miss. I recently read um, that throughout the U.S. there are apparently several millions of dollars, I actually want to say hundreds of millions of dollars every year that go unclaimed from the lottery. People who won the lottery but have no idea they won the lottery and so the money goes unclaimed. But when Christ comes again, God's people aren't going to miss out on the reward because this isn't a secret coming. This isn't a veiled coming. This is an unambiguously loud, cosmic disrupting, visible coming. Just as the trumpet sounded at Sinai when Israel gathered around the mountain in Exodus 19 through 20, so too at the end of the age when Christ comes again, the peoples of the earth will in some way hear and know that Christ has come. In short, this is a king who will come with pomp and authority at the end of the age. And his authority is underscored further by what happens next in our text, namely that the dead in Christ will hear all of the noise and they will rise. Elsewhere in Scripture, in the Gospel of John specifically, Jesus declares something similar when he, he declares, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Just as the word of God, the word of the Lord spoke creation into existence at the beginning, so too Jesus proclaimed in John 5 that his voice will literally raise the dead at his second coming. And this is what our passage in 1 Thessalonians emphasizes too. You see, the voice that speaks at Christ's second coming is apparently a summons to the dead to rise. This is, as John Stott puts it, an irresistible summons that the dead in Christ will hear from their king when he comes in glory, and they will then heed as his subjects and come to life. Now, even as Paul describes Christ's second coming, his perusia, there's still a lot of questions that we might have, a lot of questions that the text might, doesn't necessarily address directly for us. But rather than getting bogged down in what's not clear, think about what is abundantly clear in all this. Does God abandon his people? Does death speak the final word? No one know. This is the king who comes with such power at the end of the age that he will be able to raise the dead. The one who comes with victory as he unravels the cosmos at his coming and the king who in faithfulness will claim all of his subjects, whether dead or alive, to himself as he judges his enemies and then creates a new home, a new Eden, where his people will dwell secure with him body and soul, devoid of sin for all eternity. There may be a lot of uncertainty about how every detail will unfold in the end, what precisely it's all going to look like, but there's no ambiguity about the character of the one who comes to wipe every tear away from our eyes. But as Paul continues in his description of the perusia into verse 17, he then reflects about how we as God's subjects, whether dead or alive, will participate in the king's procession. How will we greet the king when he arrives? Now, verse 17 in particular, and really the entirety of the passage we're looking at, 
has often been thought, at least over the last hundred years or so, to support a view called the secret rapture of the church. If you've ever heard or read the Left Behind series before, that's a popular reflection on this so-called secret rapture view. It's been a highly influential view, specifically in America, of the end times for the last 150 years ago. So what is the view all about? Well, at a high level, this view called the secret rapture view understands that when Christ comes again in the future, he's going to come again in two parts. According to this view, Christ is going to come again once, invisibly, He's going to take his people to himself. The world's not going to know that, that, uh, that Christ came, though. You know, pilots will disappear from the planes, and the planes will fly out of the, fall out of the sky, but you know, they're, not going to, they're not going to know that Christ has come. Uh, but apparently, Christ will take his people to himself. Then there will be a seven-year tribulation where really bad things happen on the earth, and then Christ will come visibly, at which point he will inaugurate a thousand-year kingdom, and then after that thousand years, he will come um, again, and, uh, or he will rather wrap everything up and judge his enemies. Now, while many of our brothers and sisters, particularly in America, hold this view, uh, the problem with it to lovingly and graciously push back on our brothers and sisters in Christ who hold that view is at least threefold. First, this is a relatively new view in the history of Christianity. It's only about 150 years old. Second, the New Testament never understands Christ's coming to be in two parts. It never understands Christ's climactic coming to come once invisibly and then second visibly. Look at just our passage in 1 Thessalonians. It's very much an unambiguous, visible, and loud coming with Christ when Christ comes. And the New Testament is also clear, thirdly, that even the most faithful in this life, you can be as faithful as anyone could be in this life and you will not escape tribulation. You will not escape suffering in this world. The Bible never tells us that we are saved from suffering. We are always saved through hardships and suffering. And so if the text before us probably doesn't jive with this so-called secret rapture view held dear by many of our Bible-believing brothers and sisters in Christ, and maybe you, well then what does this passage teach? Well, first, understand that this scene that Paul describes of Christ's second coming is a scene that was somewhat familiar to men and women throughout the Mediterranean world as Paul writes what he writes. You see, whenever an emperor, the Roman emperor, or a distinguished military leader, or someone else of nobility would come to one of his cities for a visit, he was often greeted with fanfare as he arrived. What would happen is when the emperor or a distinguished individual was still a long way off, the city would send a delegation outside the city walls to greet the visiting emperor, the visiting um, dignitary, and then with fanfare and celebration, they would escort him back into the city. If you ever come to my house before, you'll get a perfect illustration of this. When my extroverted kids see people come uh, into the driveway, pull in, they run outside to greet the people, whether they like it or not, and then they escort them into the house with fanfare and then announce to mom and dad, they've arrived, so that we all know. And this is something similar to what Paul seems to be describing in our passage. Again, when the Lord comes, no one, unbeliever or believer, will be able to miss it. And it also doesn't matter where you're physically located on earth when he comes. Remember, this whole passage is about how Christ doesn't abandon his own. It doesn't matter if you're in the celestial city of Omaha or the deserts of Arizona or the Pamir Mountains of Tajikistan. Christ will not abandon his own when he comes. You will not be able to miss it. 
I like what uh, New Testament scholar Greg Beale says on this. Greg Beale is a little bit longer quote, but I think it's good what he says. He writes, quote, when Christ appears, he will not descend from the sky over Boston or London or New York City or Hong Kong or any localized area. When he appears, the present dimension will be ripped away and Christ will be manifest to all eyes throughout the earth. Now, how this is possible in literal geographical terms is certainly unclear, but the answer lies in recalling that a new dimension will break into the old physical dimension, and the possibilities of new kinds of perception and of existence beyond our present understanding will then be realized. When Christ comes again, it'll be a glorious coming. And when Christ comes again, we also learn that believers, whether dead or alive, will with resurrected bodies be seized or caught up. That word seized or caught up, that's the Greek word rapture. We will be raptured and we will meet the Lord in the air from where then we'll escort the Lord back to a resurrected world without sin. Now, this reference to the air, meeting the Lord in the air, doesn't mean, unfortunately, that we'll all be given the power of flight when Christ returns. Uh, Rather, the air in the Bible is sometimes associated symbolically with a place of demonic activity. Uh, Paul elsewhere refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Think about that next time you fly. Um, So the the, the fact that the air is this meeting place between the Lord and His people indicates that when Christ comes again, nothing that was opposed to Him and His kingdom will stand. Nothing that tried to deceive the church or oppose the people of God will persist in its rebellion. Christ will burst through the gates of hell, as it were, and He will extinguish all opposition wherever He finds it. Now, Paul keys us into this extraordinary maybe even complex victory at the end of the age, which the Bible elsewhere frames as a recreation of heaven and earth. And and while it really is helpful to see a general sketch of what's going to happen, though questions and debate will always remain, and it's assuring to know, of course, that Christ doesn't abandon His people, whether dead or alive, I think this also challenges us with a question. It challenges us to question ourselves. Are we anchored right now to this world that's passing away? or to the world that will come. You know, as someone who has loosely followed uh, professional sports throughout my life, one of the saddest things to behold is whenever a once great athlete just can't seem to let go and ride off into retirement like they should. Now, in their prime, they might have been some of the best athletes ever in their sport at the position they played, Um, but uh, several years removed and many, many years older, they're far from their heights, and yet they're still playing, putting up meager stats, and the only reason teams are keeping them around is for name recognitions or for contracts that they regret getting themselves into. But these athletes continue because they can't imagine a life or career beyond the one where they established fame and fortune, and so they keep clinging to the past even when their bodies just aren't holding up the way that they used to. Well, friends, don't be like a washed-up athlete by clinging to a world that's passing away. Now, maybe this world has treated you well over the years. Perhaps you've found a lot of success in this world, and you've relished all of the good things that God has provided for you well in this world. And if that's your story, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But even so, don't let the appeal of this world deceive you. 
as if paradise could ever be erected or reached here on this earth, because it's only inevitable that those dreams and expectations are going to be crushed. After all, this world is passing away, and unless Christ comes back first, so too is your body. Now, of course, for however long the Lord gives us, we're still called to work with excellence. Remember, in the earlier passage, the passage right before this, Paul explicitly told his readers, don't be idle, get to work, engage in the marketplace, things like that. And we're still called, until Christ comes again, to love people well. We're not off the hook on that one. But at the end of the day, hold everything in this world loosely, even your own health. Because in the end, our future is bound up in a new creation that we did not build and with resurrected bodies that we do not grow, all of which are given to us by the one Revelation calls faithful and true, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whatever we ultimately say about the rapture and how Christ will come again when He comes, notice that everything Paul says in this passage about our resurrection hope and about Christ's second coming comes to a head in verse 17, where Paul writes, and so we will always be with the Lord. However things precisely work out when Christ comes again, the hope of Christ's parousia, His second coming, is that we will be with the Lord forever. Friends, don't cling to the things of this world when everything around you, including your own body, will break down. Instead, anchor yourself upward in the kingdom that is to come, and specifically in the one who is to come and consummate that kingdom at the end of the day and make all things new, our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we prepare to wrap up and turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, this great foretaste that we look forward to of the fellowship we'll have in this new creation environment with the King of Kings, think about Paul's closing words for a moment in verse 18 where he summons us in light of everything that he's just said with some really practical instructions. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, as a church of many stories, something we highlight virtually every week, there are always going to be members in our church family who are steeped in grief or those who struggle with loving the world a little bit too much or those who might have a lot of anxiety about whether they are loved and secured by God in Christ. As a church family, there are always opportunities for us to come alongside each other and to encourage each other with these words. Now, more often than not, that'll require sitting with those who are grieving like Job's friends before they open their mouths. But then there are also times when that does require us to lovingly and winsomely correct misperceptions about our hope. But whatever it looks like, friends, be in each other's lives, not with platitudes and polite indifference, but with truth and love, rejoicing again with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And know also that to be effective with our words requires that we know the truth of our hope as well, and that we rest in that hope for ourselves too. And so do you? Know that in the end, sin and death and the devil do not win. That's the emphatic drumbeat that the Scriptures beat over and over again in talking about the so-called end times or matters of eschatology. Christ died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He is coming again in glory. And even though, unless Christ comes first, 
We will all experience death and grief in this life under the sun. Through Christ, we can nevertheless say all the days of our lives with Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would continue to anchor us all the days of our lives as your people, as the people of God in these glorious truths professed in this passage. Lord, would you help us to remember, to recall what was done in human history for our salvation, how our Lord Jesus was most certainly raised, died for our sins, and was raised for our justification. Would that be our hope as we look to the future, and would this picture of the future that you provide also be a great encouragement for us who are grieving in the present. Father, help us grieve well. Help us grieve sorrow and death and suffering well as a people of hope, and help us encourage each other when other people in our church family and in our neighborhoods are grieving uh, with these words too. You're a good Father, a good God. We love you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.